0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Luke, chapter 20, this is, of course, events that transpire in what we call the Passion Week, the week of Christ's suffering, the week between His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we call Palm Sunday, and then His crucifixion and His resurrection, the next Lord's Day, which Easter, which we observed last Lord's Day, we see here in chapter 20, and we're going to be considering over the next few weeks as we go through this chapter, the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ coming just in these waves as they're presented here, coming, looking for some way to to entrap Jesus in his words, looking for some some bit of leverage Against him, that they might be able to use against him. And as I was reading through this chapter and just thinking about these events transpiring, the verse that came to my mind from Psalm 68 1 was, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. (laughs) And that's exactly what we see in the events that transpire here. We see God arise, we see Christ standing strong, Christ standing challenged. But answering, responding, and the enemies of Christ being silenced. That those, his enemies be scattered. Those who hate him flee before him. The psalmist goes on to say there in, in Psalm 68. that Jesus counters every attack that comes with his infinite wisdom. Can you imagine what's going on here that these people are they're coming with their best laid plans. We're applying here their best shot coming to Jesus who is infinite wisdom. And it becomes quite apparent as we see the events that transpire in this chapter. We see very clearly the reality of what we studied last Lord's Day. That Jesus lays down his life of his own initiative. No one takes it from him. These people are not equipped. They're not able. They can't take Christ down. They can't take him down in words. They can't take him down by the arms of men. Christ lays down his life of his own initiative. The chapter 20 is a series of case studies of the enemies of God and the enemies of his Christ. In verses 1 through 8, our text today, we see there the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, those who are representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ruling authority, the ruling body there in Jerusalem who come. And then verses 19 through 26, we'll be considering in a few weeks, the scribes and the chief priests, they send their spies and they have these questions regarding Taxes, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? And so Jesus takes that on. In verses 27 through 39, the Sadducees come with their question, their trick question regarding the resurrection. And then in verses 41 through 44, Jesus silences the Pharisees by his own question to them. He seems to take the initiative there regarding the Christ. And then in verses 45 through 47, the warnings that are issued there against the scribes. So we'll be here in chapter 20, Lord willing, for a few Sundays, a few weeks. And trust that as we go through, that we can see just Christ. Christ in His wisdom, Christ in His glory against His greatest of foes. If this is the greatest they've got to offer, we've no alarm here. And it is just a reminder to us, He lays down His life he lays down his life of his own initiative. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. On one of the days while he was teaching in the teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke saying to him, "Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority?" Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think we have a tendency as believers, as Christians, to quickly forget from whence we've come. To forget what exactly, where exactly we once stood in our relationship to God, where we once stood in our blindness to our condition, to our sin. And it becomes obvious at some points in my own mind because sometimes I can. I stand back and I, I'm almost amazed at the absolute blindness of people. And I can marvel at just the, the built-in resistance that people will offer against Christ and against the gospel. And the hardness of heart that so often you can see in a non-Christian when you try to speak with them about the gospel about Christ and the response to some is such a hardness that they want want absolutely nothing to do with it. They don't want to hear it. And, you know, we can step back at times and just be amazed at that. But the reality is we need to be reminded But for the grace of God that could be any one of us. That were it not for the grace of God, that you and I would still be walking in our blindness. That you and me would still be living lives of resistance against God and resistance against His Christ. That apart from the grace of God, that you and I have the capacity of having the hardest of hearts. That we could be those who would be offended and angered at mentioning of the mere name of Jesus and certainly any reference that I need this Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. See, our marveling at the hardness of the unbeliever, it betrays us, doesn't it? It exposes our own deception because somehow or another we think it can't be possible. But the reality is we are greatly indebted to the grace of God. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would all be there or worse. And so when we come to a text like this, we come to a chapter like we're going to be considering over the next few weeks. And we see here just the Just the resistance and the hardness and the anger and the hatred that's revealed toward Christ. We need to remember, apart from the grace of God, that's us. You're not a Christian today because you're so smart. You're not a Christian today because the facts were just clearly laid out before you in this aha moment. came. You say, that makes sense, and you embraced it. You're a child of God today. It is the grace of God that was revealed Christ to you. It is the grace of God that there's been a, a work of regeneration. The Spirit of God has changed you from the inside out, and it bears the fruit of repentance and faith. And you've come to Christ, and Christ is dear to you. But it is grace all of grace. And this morning, our text gives us one of the opportunities to, to see graceless hearts. Hearts where there is no grace at work. Hearts where there's no demonstration of the work of grace at all and the qualities that we see here. And to understand that a, a graceless heart is a heart that is in opposition to God. If you're not a child of God today, you are living in opposition to Him. If you've never come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, own Him as your Lord and Savior. You are today in opposition against Him, and in opposition against God. So, to heed the warning signs of of such hearts, such graceless hearts. So, we're going to look this morning at our. Text And look at these qualities of a graceless heart. And I've called them deadly qualities of a graceless heart. Because that's what they lead to. It's not just troubling. It's not just issues of concern. It's deadly. Deadly in the ultimate sense. Deadly in the spiritual sense. That these are the qualities of our hearts today. That the very reality of eternal death and separation from God should alarm us. And if we can say with all confidence this morning, I have been delivered such a heart from such a heart. The grace of God is at work in my heart that we can look at this and we can say, thanks be to God from what you've delivered me from. It's much greater than I ever imagined. So let's look at our text this morning to think about these warning signs of a graceless heart. First of all, there is the rule of self-exaltation. The rule of self-exaltation. I use the word rule in the sense of this is the law which we, by which these people live by. A graceless heart lives by one rule. He lives to exalt himself above God. As you would look at this encounter here in verses one and two, on these days when he was teaching and the the, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders confronted him. They spoke, saying to him, "Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority?" Is there something wrong with this picture here? You know, don't we look at this picture and think, "Wait a minute, this is backwards." This is not the way an encounter with anyone and Christ, who is God himself, should be. You have this group of representatives from the Sanhedrin, the the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They come to him and they're issuing a command. Tell us. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. The essence of the question is... What right do you have to do what you're doing? Give an account of yourself to us. Answer to us. Something wrong with that? I hope we see that that's backward. And that is the the graceless heart. The graceless heart has no difficulty in exalting himself above God. And requiring of God himself that God give an account to it. By what right are you doing these things? What things? What is these things? Likely the events that we've considered a couple of weeks ago, the cleansing of the temple. But also just the the air and the spirit with which Jesus entered into Jerusalem, this triumphant entry, this deliberate riding upon this cold, fulfilling messianic scriptures, people coming and throwing their their robes and their palm leaves before him, proclaiming to him messianic messianic titles, and Jesus is just taking it all. That's part of these things. no doubt they had in mind many other things, the teachings Of Jesus. By what right are you teaching? By what right are you performing these miracles? So these chief priests. And these scribes. And these elders. They thought much of themselves. Didn't they? They thought much of their position. Their role in Israel. They viewed themselves as the guardians of religious truth. And as such. It would be reasonable for them to examine anyone making religious claims. I mean, after all, if these are the people who are in the know, the guardians of religious truth, if someone is making religious claims, then they ought to come and ask some questions, especially someone who is making apparently messianic claims. We need to check this guy out. Well, the problem is, this question has been asked before. It's been answered before. And they just keep hearing the answers and they won't believe it. This isn't new. John chapter 2, if you want to turn there very quickly. John chapter 2, verse 18. The first cleansing of the temple. I believe that there were two cleanses of the temple. And John tells us of this account. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, he cleansed the temple. Verse 18 The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They've been asking this question for years. Ever since Jesus has been active in ministry. What's your authority? And then the the text that I read a few moments ago in John chapter 5, I'll not reread all that, of John chapter 5, verses 18 and following. Well, there, Jesus gives an account of himself. I'm doing these things because I've been appointed and called by my Father to do these things. Here's my authority. This isn't something Jesus is hiding. It's not like when Jesus, when they're asking, What's your authority? Jesus is going in and hiding and he and evading the question he's not done that very clearly in his teaching he's identified why he's doing what he's doing because God the Father has sent him to do this he is there by divine authority so there's the problem with coming and asking this question of Jesus and the way they asked it they already know the answer to this question They've heard the answer to this question. The concern here is they don't have a genuine interest in truth, but rather they have the opportunity here to trap Jesus with his possible answers. And so they've narrowed it down. What are the possible answers? This is one of those, like a good lawyer, a good lawyer, when he's... Examining someone on the witness stand, he knows the answer before he asks the question. And you can bet that these guys, when they came to Jesus, thinking, all right, if we ask him, let's just go, let's just confront him. And if we ask him, what's your basis of authority? What are your credentials for doing what you're doing? What are his possible answers here? Let's make sure we've got our bases covered. And I think they knew. I think they figured it out. All right, let's just, let's weigh this out, guys. And they got in the little circle and said, all right, we asked him this question. What's your authority? What's he going to say? Well, he could say that well, I'm doing this by divine authority. Ah, well, what do we do if he says that? Well, then that, if that be the case, well, then we bring religious charges of blasphemy against Jesus. We got him there. What else might he say? Well, he might not identify any authorities. I don't really have an authority. I'm just working on my own. And if that be the case, he has no credentials, then hopefully they can cause him to lose respect before the people because he's just a freelancer here, guys. Can't go after this, this guy. Can't trust him. I think it'd be safe to say they expected one of those two answers. That he's either acting by divine authority or he's acting on his own. He has no... Authority actually given to him. So you have this self exalting group of religious leaders in a position of really the place of highest honor within their community within Jerusalem, calling upon their creator. Calling upon Their God, the one whom they profess to worship, the one whom they claim to represent, whose interest they claim to represent, they come to Jesus Christ, their God, and call upon Him to give an account to them. How arrogant can we get And the reality is there was nothing more to be said that would convince them. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' works, His deeds, His miracles that He had been performing were self-attesting to His identity. Just look at the facts. Just the facts. Look, as I consider, we considered a couple of weeks ago, as he's teaching the temple. Just look at this man. Listen to what he's saying. And lament. If there's a problem. The problem is my own heart. It's not him. Look. At what he's done. Listen to the things that he has said. If there's one rule of life. In a graces heart. In a religion. Of grace. And that's the religion they professed. The Old Testament is a religion of grace. But their rule of life is self-exaltation, living oblivious to not only their need of grace, they need grace, but also living oblivious to the abundant amount of grace that has already been bestowed upon them because of where they are. How much grace is it to be born into a society where the gospel of God, the message of the true and the living God, is handed to you? What a blessing to be those who are considered the covenant people of God. What more grace could you ask for? The abundance of grace already poured out upon them, and they're oblivious to it. Somehow or another in their thinking, it's become more of a we have earned this, that God is pleased with us. We're where we are, and God is blessing us because of who we are. They've got it all backwards. Their roles become meritorious instead of recognizing it's a work of grace. See, there is no place for self exaltation in true biblical religion there's no place for that scriptures even tell us the one who exalts himself he will be abased he will be put down but the one who humbles himself he will be lifted up he will be raised up in the heart of the christian message Of the Old Testament and of the New Testament is abounding grace of God. There's no place for self-exaltation if we have a biblical view of ourselves. We have a biblical view of where we've come from. A biblical view of what we are merely by the fact that we're born into the human race. Born into the human race as rebels against the God who has made us. Born into the human race, hopelessly and helplessly separated from God. That's where we are by nature, by our birth. No capacity for righteous deeds to endear ourselves to God. The very best that we would hope to offer is is tainted and stained and saturated with sin. So that our righteousness is as filthy rags, dead in our sins, and made alive only by the sovereign grace of God. Where do you exalt yourself if you grab a hold of that? And none of us would grab a hold of that apart from the grace of God. That's a graceless heart. That the rule of life is self exaltation. Make much of yourself, even at the place we see here, making so much of yourself that you believe that your responsibility and your right to call God to give an account of Himself to you. And we see that in the world around us, don't we? You know, the next time a disaster, what do you hear? Where was God? Where was God? And they come to the churches, and sad to say, we, the church doesn't have a good answer. Because the church doesn't think biblically. Where was your God when, when this tornado went through? Where was your God when this hurricane came through? Where was your God when this plane crashed? Where was God? As though God has got to give an account to us. I'll tell you where God was. He's where He's always been. He was on His throne, ruling sovereignly accomplishing all of His glorious purposes as He desires, as He sees fit. He is glorious. That's where God was. He doesn't give an account to us. And sad to say, many times in the church we're not much better, are we? No, let the trials come. Let the fire come in our personal lives. And all of a sudden, we're calling God to give an account. God, why aren't you doing this? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Does God give an account to us? Who in the world do we think we are? Is it not enough? Is it not enough that if we're a child of God, that He has delivered us from our death, from our sins, and from hell? What more does He owe us? We just wouldn't make it in most of the world, would we? That we pray for every week. The persecuted church, we just wouldn't make it. And I say we, because I know how soft I am. I know how quickly I am given to complaint against God. The rule of self-exaltation, Lord any semblance of this from my heart any thinking in my life that thinks that in any measure to any degree that I expect God must answer to me be rid of that secondly we see here beyond the rule of self exaltation we see the root of self preservation the root of self-preservation becomes very apparent in reading this text here that the driving force behind this representative party that has come from the Sanhedrin is not an honest and a genuine pursuit of truth. That's not what they're looking for. It's obvious because, first of all, we see the attitude of their approach. They've come with this this spirit of arrogance, this sense of Superiority. This idea, this mentality that we are in the right, you answer to us. Without any measure of, could we discuss these things? (laughs) Without any measure of, perhaps we need to reevaluate things. Without any measure of humility, they come in this spirit of arrogance, this sense of superiority. It's also very obvious they're not concerned about a pursuit of truth here because of the nature of their question. The question they asked was not again because they wanted an answer. They had the answer. He had given the answer. Now, they were designed, if anything, according to verse twenty, by things we see later, designed to entrap him. Verse twenty becomes clear that they were they sent spies trying to catch him in some statement. Let's catch him in a slip of the tongue and we'll nail him. But we also see that there's there's not an honest pursuit of truth here. There's not a genuine pursuit of truth here. By the consideration of their response to Jesus' question, they've come with their question: "What authority? What's your authority for doing these things?" So Jesus says in verse three, "I'm going to ask you a question, and you tell me." And some have said, "Well, he's avoiding the question." Now, I don't think. I think he's giving them an answer. So Jesus responds with his question. Verse 4. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now that's not a hard question. It's not a hard question for them. The baptism of John the Baptist, my predecessor, was he acting as an agent of God, or was he just a zealous man and got some people whipped up and fallen excited excitement around him just acting on his own? Was the baptism of God, or was the baptism of John from heaven that God had sent him, which incidentally, verse 6, was the popular view. He's a prophet. The only problem with The idea that saying that his baptism was from heaven, these guys weren't stupid, were they? They got their little huddle together. The problem with making such an admission that this baptism of John was in fact authorized and ordained from heaven was they refused to recognize John as a prophet. Although the masses did, they recognized that. They refused to do so because, after all, John cannot be a man of God. He has spoken too sharply against us. Established religion. Established leaders. Remember when John was baptizing? That there were those, even among the Pharisees, that came to be baptized by John. And what did John say? Not so fast. This is a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance. You bring forth fruits. You show forth the evidence in your life that there has been a genuine repentance, a genuine change of heart. Then we'll talk about baptism. So, that wasn't the way to make friends among the Pharisees. So they were unwilling to recognize that John was a prophet and he was acting as an agent of God because, after all, he was against them. But also, which we see here in verse 5, as they reasoned among themselves, now they're they're thinking, they reasoned among themselves, verse five: if we say that this baptism of John was from heaven, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, so why didn't you believe it? In other words, to make such an admission would incriminate them. And such a question, answering that question would open the door wide open for Jesus' question, Why didn't you believe Him? And to have believed the baptism of John was, was from heaven, was sanctioned by heaven, by God Himself, would be to regard John as an agent of God, requiring that they have submitted to his baptism of repentance which they were unwilling to do it was also it would require they recognize his claim as the one who precedes the messiah which john said he said in john chapter 3 verse 28 that he was the one who comes before he's not the messiah he's come before him but it would also require that they receive john's message identifying jesus as the messiah John was pretty clear, wasn't he? So, their their question, their original question of by what authority was answered. Answer this question correctly. What's the source of John's baptism of heaven or of men? Answer that question. You've got the answer to your question. But they can't do that. They're not willing to say from heaven, and likely they didn't believe it was from heaven, or we're not willing to acknowledge that. But nor are they willing to say that it was from men. But verse six. What was the reason for that? Why wouldn't they say that? Well, John just acted on his own authority. Maybe he was assisted by some zealous or some ignorant crowds. There was really no divine sanction here. Why didn't he just say that? Or why don't these people just say that? Well, according to verse 6, here's the problem. The people regarded John as a prophet of God. And these guys don't want to be part of a stoning party. The recipients of a stoning party. That's the only reason. They're just weighing out... Pragmatically, guys, if we say that he's the man, you better run and duck. Because we're going to get this crowd after us. Because the crowd thinks he's a prophet. So he answered. Verse 7. Don't you know there's a lot of pride to say? Swallow a lot of pride to do this. We don't know. We don't know. What's the motive? What's the root here? Self-preservation. We are here to save ourselves. <laughs> so we're not going to answer your question. We just, we don't, we plead ignorant. We don't know what this baptism, if it was of God or if it was man, we just don't know. You know, if you had gone to these men, you'd ask them on themselves, and I guarantee you, if you'd have gone in just their own groups, discussing among themselves. You know, guys, this is John the Baptist. You think that was of, of God or of men? You think they would have come to a consensus? I believe they would have. If they had been just the group in the Sanhedrin among themselves, the enemies of Christ, what about this John? Of men or of God? What do you think? They'd have an answer. They weren't driven here by truth. They were driven by fear. And they wouldn't even answer... What they believed to be the truth for fear. Not that their truth was true, but they weren't going to fess up. Again, Jesus has made it clear that there is no place in God's kingdom for those who are concerned about self-preservation. What does Jesus say? And those who would be his disciples about self-preservation He says something like this, that if you... Seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life, you'll save it. If the root of your life, if your ambition, the driving force in your life is about self preservation, saving yourself, you're going to lose. But if you're willing to lose your life, and there the picture is, willing to acknowledge it, I need something, someone outside myself willing to acknowledge your rightful place bowing before Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not just a matter of I need it, it's a matter of this is right, He is God, my place is submission to Him. If I am willing to lose my life, let my life become His life, Jesus says, you save it. The essence of a Christian life, the essence of a Christian commitment is one of self-denial, of taking up a cross, and the cross is an instrument of death. They knew what Jesus meant. You'd come after me and you'd take up your cross. They knew what that meant. It's not for a wall decoration. You're going to die. That's what it is to follow Jesus. It's to die. We see such a so much of a spirit of that commitment, and I just refer to them so often the persecuted church. If they just keep their mouth closed, they'd be safe. Just don't talk about Jesus, and you'll be fine. And they have such a love for their countrymen. They can't keep quiet. They have to share Christ in hopes that their their fellow countrymen will come to Christ. So they speak. And they're slaughtered. That's the spirit of Christ. It's not about self-preservation. It is about... Christ being made known to all people, to all the world, knowing that not all are going to come, but at least they're going to hear. And in the midst of that, God is going to send forth His gospel with the power of His Spirit and bring some unto Himself. There's no self-preservation. There's no place for that in the Christian life. It's not about saving my life. It's not about saving my neck. It's not about saving my reputation. It's not about so people won't think I'm some type of a religious right-wing fanatic. That's so not it it's about. It's about Christ being made known. Christ exalted the gospel going forth. And God using that gospel in the hearts of men and women as he will. Where do you see a spirit of self preservation in your spiritual walk? Maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's with your family. The times when we remain silent when it's time to speak and I'm not saying every time is a time to speak but I'm saying that there are opportunities thrust upon us time after time after time and so many of those times we just simply don't speak and what's the reason one of the greatest known well known reformed Evangelicals known for his evangelistic outreach, James Kennedy, evangelism explosion, whatever you think of that, his answer is this fear. That's why people don't share Christ. We got brothers and sisters on the other side of the world and other places who. Who, can't, who won't keep quiet and they know they're going to lose everything they've got, particularly their life. They cannot keep quiet because of their love for their fellow countrymen. And what in the world are we going to lose in comparison to that? that maybe, maybe somebody's going to kind of sneer at us. You know, you might run across somebody here that'll slap you. You might run across somebody that'll hit you. I don't know. But that's not the general case among American culture here, is it? We're not worried about Mobs and riots surrounding our house and starting throwing rocks through the window and burning our houses down and taking our children and slaughtering them. We don't worry about that too much, here, do we? The root of self-preservation is a graceless heart. We still have remnants of that, don't we? Still remnants of that in our hearts. We're going to save ourselves. finally we see the risk of self-destruction. One of the questions I will ask my children on occasions when they've done something that's wrong, committed some type of sin, I just ask them the question, who is hurt the most by what you've done? And I know that there can be varying degrees of hurt in other people in other lives in other places but generally the answer is they are you know who is hurt the most by my sin and I understand the ramifications of my sin certain sins have widespread ramifications on my family ramifications upon this church ramifications upon the Christian community at large I understand that but ultimately who is hurt the most by my sin? I am. You see, these religious leaders, fully exposed in their hypocrisy, are not answered. Verse 8. Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're not going to answer my question with any measure of integrity. I'm not going to answer your question. Because if you answered my question truthfully. You would have the answer to your question. And it just reveals that you're not concerned about the truth here. You're concerned about yourselves. And so by their sin. Their refusal to answer Jesus' question with any measure of integrity. They forfeited their right to an answer. So, where does this hard heartedness leave them now? Where are they left now? They remain in their place in opposition to God and to His Christ. They're at a point they're unable to secure even the clear truth from the lips of Jesus. Folks, this, this is as alarming a judgment as you can find anywhere in the Scriptures. When you ask for truth from the lips of God Himself and you can't get an answer, that is judgment. So hardened in their willful blindness, there's not any answer that's going to change them. Nothing's going to make a difference. Jesus knows that. He knows their intent. He knows their design. And He will not give them a clear, straightforward answer. They've got the answer. They know the answer. They don't want the answer. So He just says, I'm not going to tell you about what authority I do these things. the sad reality of a graceless heart is the risk, and in fact, here the reality of a self-deprivation, self-destruction. Ultimately, their hardness of heart, ultimately their sin hurt no one more than themselves, because ultimately it leads to their own eternal destruction. Believers, brothers and sisters, we have much to rejoice in, do we not? To rejoice in a grace that has saved us from ourselves. A grace that has saved us from the hardness, from the wickedness, from the vileness, from the foolishness of our own hearts. That is an amazing grace. That is sufficient or should be sufficient to bring great joy to our heart to consider. Lord, by the grace of God, I would be just like these men. And I could speak hypocritically, claiming I want truth. And there is no pursuit of truth. And you don't give me an answer. And those who would scoff. And there are those. Those who would regard lightly. At sin, a rejection of Christ, a refusal to submit one's life to the Lordship, to the sovereign rule of Christ, know this that you do more yourself more harm than anyone else. Listen, God is still exalted. God is still God. Jesus is still His Christ. His work is still accomplished. You don't hurt God. You can raise your fist and all your fury. You can deny Him all you want to. God is still God. Christ is Christ. His will is accomplished. And He is glorified. Even through your destruction if necessary. He will be glorified through your destruction. And you ultimately bring destruction to no one other than yourself. So, my plea would be this: if there are any here today, and you've not truly come to Christ. Whatever number of times you've heard the gospel, whatever number of times you sat in a pew or in a chair and you've, you've heard a message preached, you've heard Christ proclaimed, but the reality is there's never been a work of regeneration in your heart. Christ is not your own. This would be my plea to you today acknowledge Him as God, as your God, as Christ. To turn from your sin of defiance against Him. Embrace Him. Because the refusal to do so destroys no one but you. And you will be glorifying God even as His enemy. Embrace the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I started to put... Instead of the risk of self-destruction, the ruin of self-destruction, because it is a ruin. But I put risk because there's always hope. As long as there's a willing heart to repent, there's always hope. As long as you have a breath, as long as you have life, as long as you have the opportunity right now, you run only the risk. But once your your life has passed, it is, it is the ruin of self-destruction. These are deadly qualities of a graceless heart. And we would all destroy ourselves, wouldn't we? We would. How many of you were hell-bent on destroying your life before Christ saved you? I was. I was just going to destroy mine in the context of a church. A little Pharisee. Some of you can tell your testimonies of just the absolute messes that God delivered you from in your life. On the path to self-destruction. Graceless hearts. Self-exaltation. Even to the point where we exalt ourselves above God. The root of self preservation, it's all about saving my life. If you're going to live your life to save your life, here it is. You're already told in advance. You're going to lose it. If your goal is to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you're willing to lose your life, let Christ be your life. You save it. You find it. And then the risk of self-destruction. That's where it leads to. Your sin ultimately destroys you. So God be merciful. As the people of God, if we are the people of God, we have much to be thankful for. We have been delivered from much more than we can even imagine. But if there be any here today that you're not, may God give you grace. God give you grace. To turn from this, a graceless heart, to a heart that is experiencing His grace. Let's pray. Dear Father, there's so much more of this in my own heart this morning that I want to admit. I thank You for Your work of salvation and grace to deliver, but... Oh, Lord, to be free once and for all from every remnant. And thank you that there is that, that expectation that one day it shall be so. When you return for your people. And sin will be done away once and for all. Lord, I ask you to apply your truth today to your people. To apply your truth today to anyone here who has not yet come. Oh, Lord, that Christ will be dear, Christ will become all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.